Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Compound and Friends. On tonight's very special show, Eli Manning, former uh, New York Giant, two-time Super Bowl MVP, all-around amazing, amazing guy, came by, hung out with Michael Batnick and I, and we just had, I think, one of our best conversations ever. And Eli is now working head down in private equity, learning the business, making relationships, and uh, he just, you could tell how excited he is about this new challenge and how much fun he's having. It just, it, 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 it really just like per- permeates the conversation. And if you haven't watched it yet on YouTube, now you get to listen to it. So uh, that's coming up next. And then immediate, immediately following, it's an all new, what are your thoughts with Michael and I, we get into the Berkshire Hathaway letter. We take a look at the Reddit IPO, which is coming public either this week or next. I'm not 100% sure. Um, we get into a mystery chart. Michael makes the case for a popular financial stock. We talk Warner Brothers and Paramount and all kinds of stuff that's going on in the markets right now. So please stay tuned for that. Before I send you over uh, to the Eli conversation, I want to mention our sponsor, Rocket Money. Awesome sponsor, awesome product. This is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users, has saved people a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash compound. That's rocketmoney.com slash compound. All right, I'll send you there now. John, Duncan, do your thing. So, Eli, I spent literally an hour and eight minutes on Saturday watching all 373 year touchdowns. That's sick. All right. That's, that's weird. You didn't want no interceptions though, right? Wait, Zero, you, no. All right, yeah. So it Wait, was, you don't do that every day. You don't <laughs> try not to try not. So to. Michael Eisen has this thing, like all the Eli Manning stats and whatever. So an hour, eight minutes. Unbelievable. What a throwback. There you go. So there's, what was your favorite name of a catch? I catch. can't, I didn't remember how many touchdowns you threw to Kevin boss. Yeah. It just kept, Showing up year after That's year cool. after That's year. You know, it's a great flash in the pan that like you made his career. I don't know what happened after Larry Donnell. Yeah, Larry. Like he good, came. Had he had a good year. He had like a three touchdown game, I think. Versus Washington at Washington. So, all right, here's what I want to ask you on your touchdowns. Isn't it amazing that the recollection, like, yeah, against Washington, yeah. I the, the data points. Yeah, like, so you don't forget that. Like, your two, like, your two most famous plays, famously, are non touchdowns, actually. Right. Right. The Tyree. And the Manningham throw, which is the best throw in Super Bowl history, in my humble opinion. The San Antonio Holmes was pretty up there, good. too. But pretty good. I think that's one and two. Um, all right. So your most famous touchdown throws. I'm sorry. Your two most famous throws are that. And then I would say probably three and four, which I'm not going to let you say. Three and four are the Victor Cruz one, the 99-yard one, and then the Odell one, obviously. Okay. So take those four off the table. What comes to mind as the one that might be, like, under the radar? Um... Whew. I mean, I think I think um, I think Manningham in the San Fran, San Fran on, knew it. on, on the post. I knew so, it. I mean, that's a tight throw. It's versus kind of single high, and and uh, you're getting your ass kicked. Yeah, and it was kind of drawn up a little bit, drawn up in the dirt, which is like your favorite ones. Just you know, it's like a play we ran a bunch. I hit Victor Cruz on this little underneath shallow route over and over, and we finally said, hey, they're kind of cheating the safety backside to um, 
to Akeem Nix a lot. So he said, let's put let's put Manningham on the other side. Let's put him on a post. So if the safety's tight and taking away Victor and they're doubling him, they take away the, the tight end on the end break. We, we usually have like a comeback on the outside. We said, let's just put him on a post. You know, if it's not there, no, no, you know, no big deal. And uh, sure enough, like they took away Victor, they took away the end, they doubled Akeem, hit Manningham, and on, the pocket was clean. And the pocket on was clean play. on that one. Yeah, on that one. So I thought you were going to say that one one throw that stood out to me. I don't remember. I don't remember this game. I don't remember the throw until I saw the replay. In 2015, we were in Miami, and you had it was like only a 10 yard throw, but it was Odell was in the corner of the end zone. His feet were down. Yeah, your throw was like two yards out of balance. And he was, you remember that one? Yeah. It was like a little bootleg yeah. kind of rolled right. And he yep. kind of ran a little. <laughs> exactly. And to back to the, had to lead him back downhill a little bit. That was a good game. That was a fun one. We Odell had, had another bomb in that we had game. A bat, that was like a special play. We'd, we'd always, it was like a slant, you know, like a, a, a common football play is called a sluggo, a slant and go. And it's usually first man or single high where they run the slant, the corner jumps it and you throw like a go route down the sideline. And so this team, Vermont was playing a lot of quarters. So there's a safety, and we ran a ton of slants. So we say those safeties are going to be looking to jump the slant. Let's run like a, di- a different version of this sluggo where he runs the slant, and we kind of pump off the safety, and then he goes vertical just right up the right up the hash. And kind of kept waiting. And it was like, it was going to be a check. It was like, hey, when you see it, get to it. And, you know, we just never got to quite the look, never got the look. And finally, it was right there in the fourth quarter, tight game. They, they had made it close, and we got the look, gave him the little signal, and, it, and he could not have gotten more open. So you, it was like one of those deals where we were patient. We said, hey, we're not going to call it. We want you to check to it because we don't want to waste it. It's only, it's only good versus this specific look, and we finally got the look. You had a lot of weapons over your career. Just like taking like myself back through memory lane, Amani, Plaxico, Steve Smith, uh, Knicks, Manningham, Victor, Odell, obviously, like, holy shit, man. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of uh, Steve Smith's one that gets his name gets kind of forgotten in the mix sometimes, but he was so good early on that, that rookie year. You know, a big part of us win the, the championship and win the Super Bowl that year. That's was our downplay. Was his coming around and him, like, kind of learning the system. And we gave a lot of. We gave a lot of the uh, the slot receiver, which he was, a lot of reads. They could see the coverage, and their route would change based off leverage, coverage, everything. And uh, like Amani wasn't great at that because he had been in the league so long, it was hard for him to like adjust. Plaxo wasn't great at that. Steve Smith was the first person that got it, and and we were able to grow. And some of those plays that were my least favorite were now starting to be some of my favorites. And you know, he did it really well. And then Victor watched him, learned from him. And then when Victor came on, he took it to his a first whole season, new level. 50, yeah, I think he had 1,500 yards in his first season, something yeah. like that. And it was all like on three different routes. Not routes, three different plays that he could adjust the routes. And we just like, we can't be wrong. Like whatever leverage, he's he's he can see it. And it's hard. Like running full speed and seeing a coverage and changing your route, It like not, not many people can do it. I always joke with Victor. It's like, oh, you're slow enough that you can see it and it all can happen. If you're too fast, like everything's happening too fast. You have like the perfect speed where you could, you know, analyze everything and see it. And we were on the same page. Drew, what were your most memorable touchdowns? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was afraid you're going to ask that okay, question. We'll put those on screen later. <laughs> Actually, watching his is my most. Uh, well, I I agree with that. that- uh, John, do you want to do you want to click us in? Official three claps. All right. So excited to have you guys here. This is. Uh, All right. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Red Holtz Wealth Management. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. You're hosting, so you, I, you take I printed it the intro. I've never done that before. Okay. So I, I warned Eli. Okay. I, I gave, him a, gave him a heads up. All right. Do we have tissues? We do? All right. All right. Just in case. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Joining us in the studio today is Eli Manning and Drew Scheinman. Drew, I'll do your intro first because Eli's going to take a minute. Drew co-founded BVG, which stands for Brand Velocity Group, in 2019 with Steve Leibowitz and Austin Ramos. BVG is what's called an independent sponsor. It's a fancy way of saying they don't invest through a traditional fund structure. They raise money on a deal-by-deal basis. Prior to starting that, he was senior vice president of brand ventures at WMEIMG. Can I have some water, please? Thank you. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Drew was the chief marketing and revenue officer for the Breeders' Cup, president of Simon Brand Ventures and VP of business development for Madison Square Garden, Coca-Cola, the Baltimore Orioles, and the New York Mets. Drew has helped athletes become business owners and was involved early on with one of my favorite shows from the 90s, MTV's Rock and Jack. I remember that. How great was that? Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was musicians and athletes playing ball together. Very what a concept. Very, cool. very simple premise. Yeah. Athletes wanted to be musicians. Musicians wanted to be athletes. Bring them all together in an experience that fans could enjoy. There's a clip of that going around last week with uh, Method Man, uh, resurfaced Method Man clips playing rock and That's job. great. Yeah, yeah. You I guys remember. do your research. We love that. Yeah, for you sure. <laughs> all right. And now, Eli Manning, New York Giants legend, two time Super Bowl MVP, future Hall of Famer, deal with it, haters. I will be at Canton when you get in. Eli's post-quarterback career is off to a great start with the Manicast and all the investing that you're doing, which we will dive into today. Eli is also a philanthropist supporting Hackensack Medical Center and Tackle Kids Cancer. But for those of you who might not remember or who were too young to see all of it, let me remind you who Eli Manning, the football player, was. Most of these numbers were fairly easy to find, but if anything is like a little bit off, that's ChatGPT. We could blame that for them. <laughs> All right, here we go. Eli played 236 games for the Giants over his 16-year career. He started in New York, and he ended here. Not the easiest place to play. Let's say that. The only quarterbacks that have played more games with a single franchise are Tom Brady, Brett Favre, and Dan Marina. Maybe you've heard of them. Eli is seventh all-time in completions, yards, and touchdown passes. On the field, Eli was cool as ice and cold as hell. <laughs> you really, you you really put a lot of effort into this. That's mine. Like when that. the game was on the line, you just knew he was going to deliver. I feel like I'm reading my wedding vows here. <laughs> Eli set an NFL record in 2011 with 15 fourth-quarter touchdown passes. That's one ahead of the 14 recorded by Johnny Unitas and some other dude with a giant head that wore number 18 for the Indianapolis Colts. During his career in the fourth quarter, he's thrown for a total of 75 touchdowns. That's more than Phillip Rivers, Aaron Rodgers, Ben Roethlisberger, and Matt Ryan. Eli had 37 game. That's it. I'm almost All right, there you go. Yeah, Eli had 37 game-winning drives. Can we get to the interview part? 37 game-winning <laughs> drives. It's 12th all-time more than Joe Montana. And Eli didn't just put up numbers. He also won championships. In 2008, Tom Brady and the 18-0 New England Patriots were on their way to having arguably the greatest single season in the history of the National Football League until they played my New York football giants and Super Bowl MVP Eli Manning. A few years later in 2012, 
The Giants beat the defending Super Bowl champion Green Bay Packers, who were 15-1 that season. They went to San Francisco for the NFC Championship game, in which we won, in my favorite non-Super Bowl Eli performance ever. And finally, Eli went on to beat Tom Brady and Bill Belichick for a second time in the Super Bowl in Lucas Oil Stadium, the house that Peyton built, which must have been the cherry on top. Uh, he's one of five players in NFL history to win multiple Super Bowl MVPs alongside Tom Brady, Joe Montana, Terry Bradshaw, and, Brett, and Bart Starr. All right, Eli, let me just tell you real quick what you mean to me and why I'm so excited to have you on today to get to tell you this. 2011 was the hardest year of my life. I was 26 years old, unemployed, lost my mother that summer after a long battle with cancer. Traveling to Green Bay for the divisional round of the playoffs to see you kick the shit out of the Packers was uh, one of the best days of my life. You gave me light when my life was very dark, and I, I love you for that, so thank you. The world has changed a lot for me since you came into the league in 2004 until you left in 2020. I found a career thanks to Josh. We built a very successful business together. I got married and had two kids. Over that time, you were one of the constants. There was nothing like going to a new season with number 10 at the helm, knowing that we had a chance to compete. So on behalf of Giants fans everywhere, Eli, thank you for everything. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for that Can't great introduction. Uh, I might bring you with me everywhere I go just to introduce <laughs> that me. That was worth the build-up. There, there was a payoff. That was good. All right. That was you good. Want, you want a minute? No, I'm okay. I, honestly, okay. I thought I was going to be in tears, so I'm very proud of myself. Okay. We're all very proud of you. Uh, guys, thank you so much for doing this. This is like absolutely amazing for us. Uh, we're both lifelong giant fans. Everyone we know are lifelong giant fans and private equity fans too, I guess. We love uh, it. Let's start off with uh, how you guys hooked up and what what the mission is and, and what you're doing together. I'll, uh, yeah, start it off and how we, how we uh, met. Uh, really started with Drew calling my marketing agent, um, what, four years ago? Uh, how many times did you have to call? Just one. Just one time. They, they knew each other. Knew they each knew each other. Okay. Dude, Rock and Jock. We know yeah. listening. Exactly. They, they went back in you know their old old days of doing doing marketing and doing the NFL and doing sports and 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 they knew each other. Okay. And Drew was um, already a partner at BBG and they were acquiring uh, or just acquired a company called Barbecue Guys, which is doing e-commerce, grilling, outdoor living, patio furniture, everything, kind of creating the outdoor lifestyle, kind of building family and and uh, experiences around. Your outside entertainment, and so uh, they're based out of Louisiana. So Drew called my, my agent, and said, "Hey, would the Mannings maybe be interested in investing in this company? I know they're from Louisiana. They're all about family, and and just think it's there's a lot of uh, common ground. And sure enough, uh, we did. We liked the liked the deal. We looked at it, uh, invested in it. Eventually, uh, we all my whole family became brand ambassadors for it. Did commercials for it. Still doing uh, work for it, and kind of." After that, um, I retired from the NFL, and I had gotten to know Drew and, and Steve and Austin, all the partners, and I said, hey, can I sit in on some of these calls about barbecue guys? Just um, don't have a whole lot going on. It's COVID. It's, it's, uh, it's, I'm retired, and just want to learn a little bit more about business, and I, I just appreciate their getting to know them, their, their, kind of their views uh, on business, their philosophy around it, uh, around the culture, the importance of that, and so... Uh, it started there, grew into other, you know, listening on other companies that they were pursuing and just, uh, they said, hey, would you like to kind of do this a little bit more and, and be a partner? And I said, well, I enjoy, I enjoy uh, working with you. I enjoy the people, um, you know, that I, I'll i be hanging out with and, and like the, you know, kind of your way of looking at business and 
um, you know, the companies that you want to, uh, you know, uh, maybe acquire uh, kind of made sense with, with, you know, kind of my, how I looked at, you know, the world and look at companies and looked at business. So it's been uh, a good two plus years since I've uh, been a partner. Private equity is traditionally a very sort of sharp elbow type business. There are sharks there, right? Like when I think of private equity, I know he wasn't private equity, but I think of Gordon Gecko, like that type, that type of character. What you guys are doing at BVG is the complete antithesis of how most private equity fund, and you're not even a fund, of how most private equity funds operate. Talk about the genesis of, of why you're doing it the way that you're doing it. So part of that is I've been a white space guy my whole career. I joke often that this is the most massive white space to be a good human being and be a great investor. <laughs> so great opportunity. We saw an opportunity to disrupt the industry and to bring different values and, and really care about people, the employees of the companies that we would buy and make a difference and do well by doing good and, and to really turn the industry upside down, which we've done. Obviously getting Eli on board has helped to really amplify our story and our message, but we have to do the work and we have to really t say and do what we're going to commit to doing to the companies we buy. You had great timing with um, the barbecue brand during COVID, a period of time where everyone was reinvesting in what it's like to be at home and people did furniture and home entertainment systems and just like their own personal space. Everyone became a smoker of, of meat. <laughs> yeah. smoker Everyone was smoking yes. meat. Everyone was <laughs> yeah. baking. Okay. But um, it's not an accident that you realized what a great match the Manning family and their whole vibe and, and ethos would be with that, that idea. Was it like divine inspiration that just occurred to you like in the middle of the night or like well, what made you realize this is going to work really well? I think the key to, to talent being involved in business and brand ventures is authenticity. And what could be more authentic than the Manning family from New Orleans being yeah. involved in barbecue guys for all the right reasons. And that was the impetus to take the discussion forward. One thing Eli didn't share when I got introduced to their investment managers, the RIAs, which is who we're talking to here. Of course. The heads up was like, be careful, Drew. These guys are tough mofos. Like, I said, that's awesome because they're actually going to understand the value of a great deal. And they yeah. did. And that's how they advised the Mannings and convinced them with the right diligence. Oh, his advisors are tough. His advisors. Well, they better well, be. Well, they better be. They <laughs> he be. needs gatekeepers. But, right, but, then right. on, but then on our side of the world, you want to deal with people who are smart. I think one of yeah. the challenges in dealing with the athlete celebrity world is oftentimes they don't have that expert advice or counsel. And it's all about trust. But that basis and the authenticity is what brought the Manning family to that deal. With, pri with private equity, traditionally, you lever it up with debt, right? There's synergies, which just means people get fired. Employees are the first to go. What you guys are doing is incredible. Uh, I just, for the audience, what are you doing that's, you guys are breaking the mold. So a large part of what we're doing, we're talking to those family-owned companies, entrepreneurs who built a great company and really care about their employees and care yeah. about their legacy and care about their family. So we've turned the model upside down. Most private equity firms, as you talk about, come in, buy companies, cut costs, fire employees. We're investing in employees. We're aligning them with share the gains, which Eli could talk about. Uh, but we're changing the model dramatically. But for those CEOs and those family founders, they actually can take a great ride. And as you said, sharp elbows, past experience being on Wall Street, it doesn't have the best reputation. But in this case, they could take a great ride with great owners People are going to be collaborative and not intrusive and add so much value from so the transaction. So the transaction doesn't have to be uh, what's best for the owner versus what's best for their longtime employees. You guys have a situation where 
hey, this is going to work out for everyone. Can you can you tell us more about how that works? Yeah, and and uh, Drew mentioned we have a program called Share the Gains, where we will give ten percent of our carried interest to all the employees uh, at the That's at amazing. the company. So everybody gets to be a part of the success, and hopefully. That's what it is. We come in and, and have a great success when they will sell it. And, you know, uh, you know, obviously we'll make a profit, but everybody should make a profit. That should be a part of a, a success. I just assume when I got into this world and was learning about private equity, that was just, that was the way it was. So, hey, if you sell a company, everybody like, you know, benefits. Yeah. When you win a championship in football, it's not just the players and the owners that get the Super Bowl ring. It's people in the equipment room. It's the trainers. It's the cafeteria. Like everybody gets to say, hey, we're champions. Hey, look, I got a ring. How cool is this? It's not that way in business and companies, and we want to try to create that. And and this is just one of the ways, and we try to provide coaching to the employees, and there's going to be other ways down the road. Uh, we can give them more of the pie. Um, and so we just want to – I think when everyone's working towards that common goal and they understand if I do my job well, if I if I work my tail off and I make this company better, then I should be rewarded for it. And, and that's the idea, that you can get, be rewarded for that. Eli, you grew up around money. Your dad was a stockbroker. Your older brother Cooper's been in the business, the the financial business for a long time. What is it like being a rookie and having yeah. to learn the industry, the language? I mean, I sort of assumed uh, that, like you know, you were you were working with them, but you were sort of a figure. You're you're part of the team. You're doing the work. Right. Um, I, I, first off, it's the first time my dad has ever been introduced as a stockbroker uh, <laughs> ever ever in the history. And Archie Manning also played football. Archie Manning, the stockbroker, <laughs> world famous. Yeah, he was you know, known as picking, yeah, picking the stocks <laughs> all over. Uh, it just sounds funny. But yeah, he was for a little bit after he retired. He got into the, I wouldn't say I was learning a whole lot from my dad from the stockbroking business. Uh, but you know, I think it was always, I always had an interest in business. I always had an interest in, um, you know, kind of learning about a business. How does the business work? How do you start a business? How like, how, how does it, you know, how, how do you go public? I, all those questions I had and, um, you know, but I just didn't have a whole lot of time to pursue these things when, even as a player, when, when you know, uh, got to know great friendships and relationships with people in the business world. If they had an idea, I was like, hey, you know, I'll put you in touch with with my people who who look at this stuff and they'll make the decisions. It's not personal. It's not me. I just don't have time to look at it. I got to, you know, get in this playbook and, and learn what's going on. So I always kind of pushed it off and I would get updates and kind of, you know, hear the cliff notes about things. But um, it was when I retired, I said, I really want to dive more into this. And uh, and just learn, just learn about, you know, businesses, learn about a profit loss statement, learn about, um, you know, difference between private equity and venture and hedge fund and, and all these things and, and kind of feel where uh, I might want to get involved and where I could be impactful to to uh, to a company and, and get, you know, kind of dip my feet in. And like you said, but I am a rookie, but I've, you know, coming in you know, kind of talking with, with Drew and the team about, you know, the diligence behind a company, looking at, uh, you know, past statements and where they think the growth's going to go, how we can save costs, where, you know, then going out there and, and fundraising and trying to sell it to institutional brokers or uh, family offices or, or high net worth individuals. So you're, you're selling, you're selling uh, a product and selling a company and an idea and, and selling our company that we we're good people and we're going to do a good deal on this. So, it's been, uh, it's been, it's been new and it's been fun and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been challenging at times. I'm in some uncomfortable situations, things I have not done before and trying to figure it out. And I got to kind of know when I, you know, I'm okay. Say, you know what? 
I don't really have the answer to that question. Let me let, let Drew answer that question. I don't. I, I'm not, I would not. Uh, I don't think anyone's that. disappointed. Right. If, exactly. If, if, <laughs> if you say, "Hey, guys, it's my second year in the industry," <laughs> Drew is here for for the technicals. Like uh, I think that's one thing we talked about a little bit. It's kind of like a playbook, yeah. and not everybody needs to know the whole playbook. The quarterback does. He he's got to know everything. The assignments of the offensive line, receivers, running backs. But the receiver doesn't need to know what the offensive line is doing. Uh, right. And and right now. I was thinking about it. I'm basically the kicker. I don't know what anyone's doing. I know I know how to kick the ball, and, and that's yeah, it. And eventually, I want to grow to maybe being a long snapper or something. And, and, and. A big part of getting Eli involved in private equity is part of a strategy because most athletes, as you probably know, are, are involved in venture. Yeah. And I like to joke, like, they want to create the next three unicorns because one unicorn's not enough. So seeing private equity as an asset class where you're, co- you're buying companies that are making money, our typical threshold is companies with $10 million more EBITDA. So, so re- like, real companies. Real companies. So the athletes are now seeing what Eli's doing and seeing the value of that. And based on deals we've done, we've brought a number of other athletes in as investors because they want to evolve. Like Carmelo Anthony was an investor with us with our at Score Sports Uniform Company. It was his first investment in private equity, huh. which was great to get him, educate him, transition that over. And part of that was Eli's leadership to help others understand what private equity is all about. I hadn't really thought about that, but now that you say it out loud, most of the athletes that you hear about involved in deals, very successful deals, they tend to be Bay Area. I think the the venture guys got to them first. Yeah. And uh, showed them all the potential of of those and you hear types about the successful ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't hear about, yeah. you don't hear about the companies exactly. that make it, yeah. of course. Yeah, and there are more the, of those the percentage than percentage of private equity is higher. That's, what that's is it? Value. What is it about private equity, about venture, about the deal structure of it? Maybe it's the excitement. What do you think it is that attracts athletes to the space? Well, I think for me, I think the, with private equity is that you know you, you get the opportunity. At least with us, we're we're like we said, we're an independent sponsor. We're, we're doing kind of one one deal at a time. We're finding a company, we're acquiring it, and then we go raise the money for it. And for me, these SPVs, SPVs. SPVs yeah. Yeah. So, do you try to raise the money based on what type of investor might be interested in that specific company? Yes. So that's very that's very smart. It's very curated, exactly, to your point. Very, is, okay, so you have the right investors in the right deals? Yeah, Not just right. money, but people that can help. Got yes. It. And there, and, uh, some, you know, obviously, we did, a, you know, Drew talked about Score Sports. It's a youth sports apparel uniform business. So we got athletes, but they are writing real checks. But they can also introduce us to different people from their world, whether it's youth soccer, yeah. or whether it's basketball leagues or camps or church leagues, you know, different people – in these social uh, ha- social capital. connections, yes, they can and and they can benefit from. Them. They make introductions. They can kind of earn uh, some more equity, possibly, and and through their connections and 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 helping the company grow. And so, I think that's that's the idea uh, about it. But like for me, it made sense just from from a marketing standpoint. Like I've 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 you know uh, endorsed a lot of companies. This is it's kind of the same thing, except now you have ownership in the company just and so. like. But hey, you gotta sell it to people you gotta we gotta grow it and and when i did a, a marketing campaign t- technically it didn't matter whether the campaign did well or we sold more of a certain product or not um but now it does like you're you're kind of truly invested in it and so it's a little i think easier to sell something when it's an effect um you know kind of how how you're going to do on this deal well now it's more like the rest of your career now it's like skin in the game like you're you're on a team and it's not just like here's my time for shooting the commercial. Now it's like, 
I know the founder of this business. I know who the employees, and I really want this to work for the investors. Exactly. And that's okay. So, that's, that's Eli, exciting. are you are you actively um, raising money for these deals? Like, where do you fit into the BVG family? Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> He's all in. Yeah, just uh, from from athletes that might might be it to team owners to just people I've met from golf to anything that you know. And I think that was like kind of the uncomfortable part at first. Like, I've never asked anyone for money. I've never said, Hey, you should invest in this deal. I've never, you know, I've said, Hey, you should drink or you should eat Quaker oats. Like I've done that at a commercial. It's a little different yeah. saying, Hey, eat, you know, eat a bowl of First, this rather than, check. yeah, give me a check for a couple hundred thousand yeah. dollars, you know, trust in, in this. And so I think I just had to understand kind of like how people have come to me before say, Hey, I got this great deal. I just say, all right, talk to my team. If you can convince them, then, then we'll do it. It's like nothing personal. So same thing. Some people, you know, said yes. Some people put us in touch with the right people. Some people said no, but a lot of them afterwards say, Hey, we passed on this one, but we like to see the deal flow, keep things coming. We want to see your next deal. And, and some said yes and, and like it and, and you have opportunities. So you're just, you know, growing the, that relationship and that friendship and getting more comfortable doing something that you're doing for the first time. You probably have to act as a little bit of a gatekeeper also so that his time doesn't get wasted. Because there's probably a lot of people that maybe they're serious, maybe they're not, but they would just love to take the meeting because it's Eli. So how do you think about, you know, making sure he's accessible but not too accessible? Eli is uh, insanely excellent at managing his time with all the things he has going on. The best time management skills I've seen of any executive okay. I've That's ever. That's my kryptonite. I'm like the worst at that Ever engagements, I give credit, I think, to his mom, to Olivia, because yeah. she managed the kids and the family at Archie, the stockbroker. I mean, I, I made the football player. Uh, but so like, so that's, that's a big part of it. But I will yeah. say as, as a partner, and we take partnership very seriously, he's all in. He's never not been involved in a meeting that we request or we say it's important. And of course, he's still on Coughlin time. I can't believe you didn't bring that up because he was here before you guys were. You yeah. know that, right? Showed yeah. up at the meeting. So he's always showing up. But I think it's it's a great point because we're very careful about how do we util utilize Eli for the right benefits. You know, 20 right? minutes early, you're late. Well, so that's five. five. But yeah. five minutes. Coughlin was five and <laughs> okay. I was always was kind of five minutes before the five minutes. Okay. So was, was he like among the most influential people in your professional career? Yeah, 100%. Like outside of your family members, like who, who else would you throw into that category? I, I mean, that's the great category. thing about with, with being athletes. You have great coaches that, that can really mold you and, and, and teach you. Um, just how to, yeah, how to prepare, how to get ready, how to be mentally strong. So, you know, David Cutcliffe was my, my coach at, at Ole Miss for five years and, you know, a huge impact for someone when you're 18 to 22, yeah. 23 years old. And, and his big deal was, you know, do the common things uncommonly well. So really paying attention to like the small details and every little thing you do, make sure you do those small things better than anybody in the world. And then the big things will come. And, and so that was his approach. And then Tom Coughlin, you know, my head coach for, for, for 12 years, I'm, you know, 23 years old. I come in, I'm a rookie, I'm a baby. And when he leaves, I'm 35 years old. I have three kids, you know, I've become like a, a, a grown man and, and, you know, with him for every day for basically nine months out of the year. Uh, and his impact just on preparation. He, he talked a lot about if he had four hours to cut down a tree, the first three hours, he's sharpening the ax. And that's his mindset. You don't win games on Sunday. You win it Monday through Saturday in your preparation, in your work, in your commitment to details. And then you go out there and, and you just react 
to what's going on. You trust in your training. You trust in the Michael the work believes in that. The, look, look, yeah, this, exactly. is, this is the compliment <laughs> exactly. fact. But that's it. Preparation, yeah, yeah. right? He absolutely, had it. He, he obviously practiced it. Uh, you know, so you know the tears didn't got the come tears out. out of my system. Yeah, you got them out of the yeah. system. You knew but, what the. But what I'd love to, to go expect. back to your great question because you know private equity is insanely competitive. Mm. Last I checked, we have a world class competitor. We're all very competitive. We like to win, so competition yeah. doesn't scare us. So private equity, success private equity is all about the quality of the deals, quality of the companies you can acquire. Because if you find the right company, the capital is there. Sure. So Eli is an integral part of like sourcing companies as we're pitching new companies coming to the table, you know, for the right reasons to show how authentic we are and how committed we are to being different. And that that's how you win at the end of the day. I know this community that we're talking to, there's a lot of deal flow out there. And we love to engage in an opportunity to see more of that. For the right reasons. I have a great deal. We'll talk after the show. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, why do you why that way instead of why not raise money for a fund where you don't have to sell individual deals to investors? You don't have to call and get rejected. And now show me the next one. Like why why do it that way? I think at the right time we will pursue that, but it's not the right time for us today. And it's very it, and the other part about back to the community of bringing deals to us. Being an independent sponsor, you could be very entrepreneurial. And by our nature, we are entrepreneurs. We started out with nothing, and here we are today with great success. So that's very enticing. And I could say in my network, a lot of people have come to me and said, hey, Drew, we now know somebody we like and we trust in private equity. Here's two deals. And how they could okay. participate in the economics, obviously all above board with compliance approval. But that's that's highly motivating for where we are today at the right time down the road, we, we may pursue a fund. From the seller's perspective, and I don't know this, so I'd be curious, it almost feels like that would be a more alluring offer if if the if the private equity firm is coming to me and saying, we're not just throwing you into a fund. This is something really specific that we're going to do. We're going to bring in the right investors. We're going to structure this and um, custom tailor it to your business and your business's future. That, to me, that sounds like you would almost have an edge versus, I don't know, like a $10 billion fund. No question. Okay. You sound All like right. you're more than a kicker, by the way. You, you're, you've advanced from Eli's kicking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, I, I mean, really I, would, I've, been around, I've been around for a little yeah, bit, that's, but no, I don't know private equity well at all. No, so. you, know, you know exceptionally well. That's but, what yeah. drew me a little bit to, to BBG is that it, was a, it wasn't a fund. And so right. like a fund, you, you, you're not forced to, hey, we got to put money out. We got to spend this money. We have it. And you might do a deal that's maybe not the perfect deal. It's not a great deal. With us, we we can be very patient in the fact that, hey, we're going to look for the right deals. We don't have to do a bad deal. We we need to, we're a small fund. We're getting, you know, kind of getting our feet wet. We're, we're new to this in, in the sense of we don't have tons of deals out there. We need to get these right. We They need to be good deals for us. And, and so that's what drew me to it is that, you know, you're, you're being selective on making sure we're doing good deals. How do you guys feel about exits? Like what's your, what, what are you telling investors for a new deal in terms of like how much time, how badly do you need the capital markets to be in good shape uh, or, or any of these potential IPO candidates? I'm just curious, like how you think about that. They're all good considerations. So you have to think through very carefully. A typical private equity is three to five years. Right. So we're no different than that today. Now, with our share of the gains program, over time, we may evolve and have greater flexibility with the right type of investors and LPs to extend that out, right? If, if you want to and, and have that flexibility, it might make sense to do that. Okay. There's been just an enormous surge in athletes building brands, becoming business people. Like, the lines are really starting to blur between, you know, like what Draymond's like 
still playing and he's doing the podcast and he's on TNT and he's doing all sorts of other shit at the same time. Where do you see this trend going? Like, is there sort of like an oversaturation coming? How much, how much can we take of all of these people having their own brands and their own businesses? How much or, room is, like how much room, yeah, how much is, room there? is there? I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely changed over the last, you know, 15 years. Uh, I mean, when I was, when I was still playing or, or early on in my career, you really didn't talk about anything besides football. Like you didn't talk around in the locker room much. You didn't talk about deals. You weren't on, going on podcasts or going on shows or doing interviews about anything financial. It was like, don't talk about that. Don't you don't want anyone to think you care about anything else besides football. And, right. and I tell t- told a story about you know uh, an off season going back and and had an offensive lineman. I asked where he was training for the off season. He said, well. I'm kind of just, you know, did a lot of work, got my real estate license, preparing for life after football. And after like a few weeks of practice, I was like, hey, if you don't start blocking better, you're going to be doing that real estate thing full time. And sure enough, he was. So, like, so that was the mindset. Like, you know, if you weren't all in, then then you were gone. This is such a short life to be a professional athlete. And obviously, there's the ones that have been doing it for a long time at the top of the game. And, and you know, there's just so much more exposure. You hear about these deals of guys invested early in a company. And so word gets out, other athletes hear that and they're saying to their financial advisors, Hey, I want to get in some deals. Like I want, I want to get in, you know, some of these early deals and which can be dangerous. But I think, you know, the contracts are getting bigger. They have money to spend. Hopefully they're spending it the right way. They are investing it. They are putting it out there and to invest. I think that's the positive thing. That's a good thing. Uh, but you know, like you said, a lot of these athletes are, they are, uh, yeah, they're on their own podcast. They're doing shows. They're, they're out there. And that's just kind of the way the world goes with social media, with everything, everything you do is, is kind of to be seen or it can be seen. And so, you just want to make sure the things you're putting out there are are worthy to be seen. And we, and we and we want to help. You know, from my experience starting Talent Brand Ventures at Endeavor and then now being partners with Eli and what we're doing private equity, we've seen the world from a very unique vantage point. Yeah. And we work with a lot of talent across different deals, but we want to help the RIA community and those that are involved in that because I think we have great experience and wisdom and have learned a lot. And, and that correction, I think, is critical to your point. Is like so much going on. The correction is yeah. the path to the future. And part of that is the education and the different mindset of those people on the other side who we go to to help make those deals. They have to learn. And, and we're here to help educate them. We'll let you guys get out of here soon. But before we do, Eli, you were, you were pretty tight-lipped as the quarterback of the New York Giants. And there was always stories from your teammates. Eli's hilarious. He's a, he's a prankster. He's got a personality. Now the world is seeing it with a man and cast and all the, everything else you're doing. What was that like being so, gu- I mean, I know you just being so guarded in, in front of the media for all those years. I think he just, you know, for me, I think I, that was a, a play that I, I thought I had to, I had to make just being in New York. You have so many uh, papers and TVs and stations talking about the giants and I'm talking about New York where if you, if you say something and all of a sudden, you know, someone's going to say, well, he's a goofball or he's not serious or he's not focused. Like, I mean, they're all competing against each other. They're all looking for one little story, one little thing that hit that's different from what the other, other people are saying. And so I was very, uh, you know, conscious of that, of not giving them anything that they could, you know, say I wasn't committed to doing my job and playing quarterback for the New York Giants. And that was my, my number one focus. I didn't want to give anyone, any, you know, uh, opportunity to say anything differently. And so this, I think it was when I did retire and I said, well, I don't, 
I don't really have to worry about it anymore. I don't have to worry about someone saying I'm not focused or not serious about what I'm doing. I'm on a show where I sit on my couch and watch football and make fun of my brother's <laughs> forehead. It's not like it's not that serious a job. But you know, I, obviously we're doing business and and that's you know it's fun. Like you know, I get to be around good people, I get to learn about businesses. Every every meeting that uh you know, I sit in with Drew and the team and we're looking at a company. I, I'm like, I'm learning something new, a new word. You know, the first one was EBITDA. Now it's GARP, growth <laughs> at a reasonable price. That's my favorite. I'm a big GARP guy. Just throwing that out left That's and right one. in That's the streets. Yeah, just like, hey, how's your how's your GARP game? Um, you know, uh, <laughs> strong to quite strong. Are, you, are y'all doing a lot of GARP? You're looking at a lot of GARP companies? We're all about you know, GARP yeah, here, too. all about GARP. Eli, where, where Chad's powers come from? Chad just came, you know, was doing a show. Think for, Fast, Run Fast. Yeah, Think Fast, Run Fast. Doing a show for, for ESPN on places, uh, kind of doing a history of, of college football. And we said we, you know, want to try out, go undercover and try out. Penn State does these two open tryouts uh, still for people to walk on, or they call them run-ons. Um, and so we called Coach Coach Franklin and said, hey, can we try out? And, and went undercover and and – and did it and just started, you know, amazing. just started making up stuff and think fast, run fast. I don't know what that means. It, it means nothing. I don't, you know, never, never said that in my life. It was just, I felt like I had to talk. I had to say something there by myself. I'm mic'd up. I, you know, no one's How many people to told you after that that has to be a show? Like everybody, right? Uh, yeah, heard it. Now it is. I mean, yeah. it's, it's Glenn just, Powers. Yeah, it's got, yeah. Um, Are you guys you know, involved? Glenn Are you guys pr- yeah. paid in producing that? Uh, Omaha is involved and I'm an executive producer, but I've sat with, you know, sat with, you know, as they're writing the scripts and just talked about what, you know, what a locker room's like or what's, what's going on, what would happen. And so, you know, obviously they're much better at it. And I think they, you know, they chose Glenn Powell just because we have similar bodies, obviously. <laughs> uh, and so it made, made a lot of sense, but I've gotten to know Glenn and talked to him. We're kind of go back and forth. I gave him some hard time about, uh, one of the early times we were on a on a Zoom together, you know, kind of you know talking about this, I said, "Well, Glenn, I did see you throw a pass in Maverick, and uh, you're like we're, we're, we need a lot of help. You know, we're gonna have to go to some camps. We're gonna have to really put in the effort." He's like, "If you didn't know how much baby oil was on these balls, we were all lubed up for that, oh, that's that right. beach they, scene. They did the beach scene. Yeah, he's absurd. throwing the balls. It's like a repeat of the volleyball. Yeah. It was a exactly. callback. Exactly. So, uh, so having fun with it. But yeah, the fact that there's a a show, a scripted series being made after a, a, a character that I, you know, came up with is is like mind blowing. I would never imagine that or assume that or guess that in, in my entire it's life. Amazing. Um, do you have a strong opinion uh, about two two things that have just started really since you stopped playing, but they I think they have a big impact and they or they will. Do you have a strong opinion on name image likeness for college athletes and uh, sports betting? And I, I think it's supporting the game right now. I don't think it's really crossed over into any negative outcomes, but how do you think about those two things, which you really didn't have to deal with right. while you were playing? I'm okay with, with NIL. I, I'm fine with, with, with uh, college players earning, earning some money. They're, they are in a business. It's a big money business of college sports and TV. And so I'm fine with them uh, getting something. I don't think you should be like, paying high school guys to come to that school. Like I, I'm kind of feel weird about that. I think it's like once you're in college and you become the starter and you're playing like, Hey, you know, if the guy wants to do an endorsement deal or the guy gets some money or everybody's getting the same amount, I think they should be getting something. But like, I think there's no loyalty to your school anymore. You're not going to a school because, Hey, I love this offensive coordinator. I felt like if I'd never played a down of football in my life, this is to be the school I yeah. go to. I love the campus. I love the people, the atmosphere. Like that's not in consideration anymore. It's all about 
oh, they're paying me $50,000 more, so I'm going to go here. And then that's why, you know, they're not happy after a year and they transfer. And now you can transfer so easily, which I don't think, I don't like that idea. I think you should go back to the old way where if you transfer, you should have to sit out right away. That'll, I think that'll put more, um, you know, thought process into where you're going to school. Make sure you're going to the right spot. Are you fine sitting two years? Like that, that used to be yeah. fine. I sat two years and then you played three years. Uh, these kids don't want to do that anymore. And so, I think I think there's I'm okay with it, but they gotta they gotta hone it in a little bit. It's you can't create the wild wild west, which it is right now. Um, and I think the the sports betting's been going on forever, and I'm fine I'm you know I'm fine with that as well. And think it, like just like fantasy football, I think has has made the game of football and, and all sports more popular. You're getting to know the players, you're getting to know yeah uh, you know the whole league and not just your favorite team. I think with sports betting, you're watching more games. You're watching all sorts of football to basketball to any sports. And if you want to, you know, throw a wager on it to, and do your homework and study on it, then, then I'm fine with that as well. Would you guys do deals in that space if they came to you? With the right kind of deals, we'd consider it for yeah. sure. Because both of them seem like they would make they would make yeah. sense if the, the, right, the right level of growth of the company and the right opportunity to, to continue to grow and evolve, we'd look at that. So I know we ha- we have them for a finite time. No, I'm I'm good. Drew, yeah. thank you for coming. Yeah, this, this was great. amazing. Thank Eli, you guys. thank you so much for coming. So much this fun. was uh, really you. a thrill for me. You guys, so thank you. you guys are you guys are amazing. I love the story, and we will follow your career with great interest, as they say. Perfect. Uh, I'll see you in Canada. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so you much. Can thank you introduce me. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Very special guests. Uh, Drew, thank you so much. Very special guest, Eli. You guys have been amazing. We appreciate it. Uh, All right, that's it from us, guys. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. I think we're going to do it one more time just to make sure. (laughs) Exactly. So I want to hear that again. We weren't recording. You're opening. I mean, I can't believe I didn't cry. All right, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the world famous Compound and Friends flagship show. What are your thoughts? I think I'm saying that right. I don't even know what's going on anymore. Guys, it's Tuesday night. It's five o'clock. So you know what that means. It's an all new edition of What Are Your Thoughts uh, with myself, downtown Josh Brown, and my co host, Michael Batnick. Michael, say hello to everyone. Hello, hello. Hey, something really magical happened over the last day or so. Uh, the comments about Michael Batnick went like uniformly positive. People just fell in love with the way you introduced uh, Eli Manning and tied it into like your personal story and people just can't get enough. They love it. I think you're going to have to do that for every guest from now on. That's Can, you muster that? Can you muster that much emotion for, uh, for, for, for our next few uh, podcast guests? You know what? I, I, this is too much sharing for Eli, but I, it's, it's, a, it's bigger than sports, Josh. I remember being in front of my house in 2005, the second time I got kicked out of college, sitting yeah. in, uh, in my dad's car, crying tears of failure and humiliation. Yeah. And on Sunday, when my dad was in my office, standing right here, reading that letter and crying tears of joy, it was very, very emotional for me. 
Yeah. And Eli was mm-hmm. like, so it's, it's as much about me as it is about Eli. No, but listen, everyone has that thing in their life. Some For some people, it's a book that they read at a really important juncture in their life. For some people, it's a sports hero. For other people, it's an album that they listen to on repeat. Like it's, that's a thing. So this was your thing. I mean, that's my guy. this was so cool. And, but the fans really picked up on that and you didn't cry. You held it together, but it sounds like a lot of other people had, had a, a, a tear in their eye watching you get to tell him that stuff. I so love it. Very special for me. That's a, t- that's like a top five moment in compound history for sure. So congratulations and uh, really, really great job emceeing, um, that interview. All right. Hey, everybody. It's a big show tonight. And I want to let you know that we are sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a really cool app. It saves you money. It brings sanity to your life. It's a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It monitors your spending and it helps you lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Michael, what else am I missing here? I love this thing. So Every week, it tells me how much I spent compared to the prior week. Every time I get a refund, it says refund detected. Every time uh, my wife is spending money on something, it says large transactions detected. And I say, hey, what's this? And she goes, how did you know? Rocket Money. Mm. That's how I know. I'm a sleuth. That's that's cool. Rocket Money has over 5 million users, has saved people a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions. I love it. Yeah. I really do. Uh, so, so here's how you find out more. Rocketmoney.com slash compound. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Rocketmoney.com slash compound. All right. You read the Berkshire Annual Letter like everyone else working in finance? Yeehaw. Okay. What what uh, what, what was your, like your, maybe not takeaways, but like your general impression? I thought he, uh, I thought he rose to the occasion. This is the first one, obviously, since Charlie Munger passed away. And it starts with a, a full page encomium for his best friend slash lifelong business partner, and I thought it was beautiful. He didn't like go over go over the top. He didn't write page, four hundred yeah. pages, but he said the way he phrased it was, "Charlie's the architect of Berkshire. I am the general contractor, and Charlie was content to let me spend most of the time in the in the spotlight." But really, I was just acting on his orders. I thought that was really, uh, you're going to say that someday about me. That's like our and, relationship. Uh, yeah, it's exactly like that. No, but I thought that was like a really nice way to phrase it and in a very succinct uh, tribute. I thought that, yeah, the tribute to Charlie was great. The thing that I love about reading Warren Buffett is he says the same damn thing every year. And he's been saying the same thing every year since 1950, which is buy good businesses, wait, don't bet against America. It's very simple. And yeah. I love the reminder of that because 24 hours after reading it, I always forget. So every 365 days, I get to remind myself of why he's Warren Buffett and I'm a bald idiot. He, uh, he, he I, thought, I thought, did a nice job of, like in, in one paragraph, explaining the influence that Charlie Munger had on him where- like he was, to, so he said, I bought Berkshire Hathaway. Charlie Munger said it was a terrible decision because at that time, Warren was still under the sway of his earliest mentor, Ben Graham. You can almost say the looking spell. For this, fine, we could say that. Uh, and what he was looking for were companies like Berkshire Hathaway, which were terrible companies, but at such great prices that it didn't matter how bad they were. 
And that was Buffett's investment strategy. And Charlie talked him out of it and said, look, that works on a small scale. Ben Graham was operating during the depression and he's like a, a, a university professor. That doesn't work running an investment partnership or a, a public company insurance uh, business. You really can't scale that because there are not enough pieces of shit to buy that are going to survive. Um, so being talked into, how about this? Let's buy amazing businesses and it doesn't have to be the cheapest price. It could just be a good enough price. And that was an unlock for uh, young Warren Buffett. And that, if you look at their most successful investments ever, they're mostly in that group of companies. And it's not, uh, you know, horrible businesses bought at perfect prices. So I thought he did a really good job bringing that idea back to the forefront for people that have never read a Berkshire letter before. Uh, one thing that I think as a reader of Buffett's letters, like one thing that stands out is integrity, which is obviously lacking in, in this business in the late fifties. When did he close his partnership? Was it late sixties? I think it was the early six. I think it was the early sixties because the first Berkshire Hathaway letter that he ghost wrote for the CEO was 1965. I think. All right. So what, whatever it was, he wound up the partnership because he didn't think that the, that the conditions were favorable for him to be able to earn the type of returns that he was used to delivering for shareholders. And nobody does it. Everybody rides the fees and, and rides it out. But he returned their money. He gave them a few options, told them that he would help them. And he yeah. did that. And most recently, now he's 93. He's obviously made you know tens of billions of dollars. But nevertheless, nobody talks like this. And this is what I mean. He said, just in terms of setting expectations, he said Berkshire should do a bit better than the average American corporation and, more important, should also operate with materially less risk of permanent loss of capital. Anything beyond, quote, slightly better, though, is wishful thinking. This modest aspiration wasn't the case when Birdie, that's his sister, went all in on Berkshire, but it is now. Nobody talks like that. He's like, listen, if you think that I'm going to be able to do going forward what I did in the past, you're delulu. It's not going to happen. Here's why. Nobody is in a position where they're managing money the way that he is. So he's not charging an investment management fee. So he doesn't have the incentive to convince people to stick around. If somebody wants to sell Berkshire stock, that's not a person that's paying him a fee and they have to find another buyer to take it from them. So he has permanent capital. So it, it's hard to talk that way. If let's say you, ma you manage Let's say you manage a $10 billion hedge fund, which is huge still in this day and age, uh, and your specialty is small caps. You obviously can't do the same type of investing in small caps at $10 billion that you could do at $100 million. There's just no chance. You need, you need much bigger market cap stocks to play in, and you're probably giving up a lot of alpha. But here's the problem. You're charging 2% in management fee, and you need to charge that because you hired all these great analysts. So you're surrounded by talented people and they have to get paid. So that's why nobody else talks that way. Because if, if you were that $10 billion fund manager and you start telling people, hey, expect much lower returns, they're going to pull their money out and then you have to start firing uh, your, the, the talent that you've amassed, which will then affect the, the performance of the fund no matter how much it shrinks to. So it's almost like, it's almost like there's a, a Rubicon in, in – uh, hedge fund management and for different categories of hedge fund, it's at different levels, but Buffett is not a hedge fund. 
So he doesn't have that constraint where he needs to be able to charge enough to pay all these people. It's just not the way that he's structured. And, you know, other people have figured this out. That's why so many hedge funds have set up overseas insurance subsidiaries because they would love to have a property casualty insurer throwing, you know, throwing money uh, into an investable pot the way that he does. Uh, he just beat everybody to the punch and figured this out, you know, 50 years ago. And that is, I think, one of the main sources of of uh, their enduring advantage. But still, like at this size, they have $163 billion in cash. Is that the number? Something like that, yeah. It's a lot. It's in terms lot. of si so, so size has really become the enemy of what they could realistically do at this point. They said, he said that uh, just in terms of their size, like them versus the rest of the S&P 500, they occupy 6% of the universe in which yeah. they operate. So he said there, there remain only a handful of companies in this country capable of truly moving the needle at Berkshire. And they have been endlessly picked over by us and by others. Some we can value, some we can't. And if we can, they have to be attractively priced. He's just not going to have, everyone's saying like the cash pile, the cash pile, when is he going to pull the trigger? What's he going to buy? Never. There are very few companies, as he just said, they're all fairly valued for the most part. Yeah. He's not going to quote unquote pull the trigger because the the elephant gun is now even too big to shoot an elephant. It's it, uh, it's like, honestly, at this point, it's like an anti-tank. Like the, the, the target that you would fire at with that amount of money I mean, what 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 could you what what could you buy? Well, he could have during COVID, if he were not involved in the airlines and all that stuff. Like, if there were a thirty percent decline in four weeks that wasn't caused by all those sort of reasons, he'll buy something. He just couldn't back then. Dave Wilson saying buy Visa or Mastercard. Do you know how big those Massive. market caps are, Dave? Visa's what six hundred billion at this point. <laughs> it doesn't matter. He's the largest shareholder in American Express. That's that, that in no way that in no way helps. Um, I, I, I kind of, I was on with Eamon Javers. He was doing the seven o'clock CNBC show on, on, uh, on uh, Friday night, the night before the filing came out. And we were just joking around, like, what would he buy? I, I was saying Amazon, but he was trimming Amazon as recently as last summer. So that's not the secret stock. Um, in Barron's, Andrew Barry said he thinks it's a financial because even though the, the secret stock that he's accumulating is, is hidden they updated to say that their exposure to the financial sector is up by a billion dollars. So then it's like, well, which financial? And Barry guessed um, BlackRock and two others. I forget. I don't know. You know what it's, he what, what he could buy? It's a $100 billion market cap. I don't know what the enterprise value is. Knowing nothing about this company, I'm just throwing out a name. Uh, Deer. Trades for 12 times forward earnings. Yeah. I mean, I mean, cer certainly. I don't know if he wants that much cyclical exposure to agriculture per se. He, you know. I, oh no, it's interesting. Did you read what he wrote about? He's invested in deer before. Yeah, he, he has sold it. Yeah. You know what? Did you see what he wrote about utilities? No. Just the maybe I forgot. Just how uh, how much the environment has changed and how they're cheap for a reason and how regulation is really just doing a ton of damage. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, uh, and he's obviously. Uh, one of the biggest utilities in I mean, Berkshire Energy. Maybe is, the I don't know. Uh, the the Mid American Energy might be the biggest utility in in the country. Um, it's I, I think, and uh, or it's it's number two or whatever. Uh, one thing that I thought one thing that I thought about was just what a great job they've done on succession. For ten years, people said the biggest risk to Berkshire is when Warren or Charlie pass away. 
the stock will instantly sell off. This stock, uh, Charlie Munger passed away, and the stock went vertically higher. Not, I don't think related to that. I think it's just a great time to be in the insurance business right now, and uh, for a variety of reasons. And so, it's a terrible time to be buying insurance. <laughs> it's a great job to be in the insurance business. Um, so, obviously, that 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 thesis uh, did not play out, and actually. Berkshire Hathaway got to the point where it had an RSI of 83, Wild. which uh, Sean and our research team pointed out has only happened four times uh, total, including this one since 1995. So not only did the death of Charlie Munger not sink the stock, it actually uh, it's never rallied harder, which is pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. What does this statement mean? Berkshire now has by far the largest gap net worth recorded by any American business. What do they mean by that? You know, I read that. Five, it's funny you mentioned that. I read that five times. And I was like, I've never heard of gap net worth. I, I'm, I don't know. Is it just assets minus liabilities? I'm not sure what, what it is. Is it just book value? Okay. I don't know. He's saying record operating income in a strong stock market led to a year-end figure of $561 billion. The total gap net worth for the other 499 S&P companies was $8.9 trillion. By this measure, Berkshire now occupies 6% of the universe at which it operates. So that's not market cap, obviously. No, it's it's uh, net worth. Yeah. He's saying the net worth of Berkshire is equal to 6% of all of American business or or 6% of the whole S&P 500. So that's that's like sort of interesting. That's sort of interesting. Uh, all right. Uh, we uh, I know we're going to talk a lot more about Berkshire Hathaway later this week. Yeah. With uh, a very special guest, so I don't want to step on the content. Uh, we'll just tell people to uh, tune into the Compound on Friends on Friday, and you are in for a treat. What's next? All right, let's stick with goats. Um, we've every time we talk about Druckenmiller being bearish on TV, or the any goat. of these, or any of these guys, we always make the case that yeah, but he could change his mind tomorrow, like literally every time. Yeah, and also. What he says does not necessarily have to be congruous, believe it or not, with how he's invested. He yeah. could think something, but also respect that the market is doing whatever it's doing that might not be in line with, with what he's saying publicly. Not that he's trying to mislead people, but the point is, watch what they do, not what they say. And of course, unfortunately, you can't watch what they do, uh, at least in real time. So Brandon Balow at Market Plunger one tweeted, Stanley Druckenmiller's latest 13F just goes to show how much of a goat he is. The dude preached recession and hard landing but somehow owned both NVIDIA and Eli Lilly in size and killed it. We are not worthy. Worthy, Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is what this should tell you. If you're still listening to these dumb f***s who are trying to scare you out of your retirement portfolio by telling you what Druckenmiller just said on Bloomberg uh, television, maybe you need to rethink your uh, sensitivity to the financial media and how much shit you're watching because it, it just might not be for you. Um, I think an adult can watch somebody like Stanley Druckenmiller and say, okay, wow, uh, I don't love how negative he sounds and I know how amazing he is as a trader, but it's also possible that the things he's saying either don't come true or that he changes his own mind. And maybe I won't react. Uh, the, problem, the problem with prolonged exposure to quote unquote Druckenmiller content is it's a guy with strong opinions and he delivers them really well and he could scare the shit out of you. Um, I look at, I had to learn this. I went to the Iris own conference in 2010. That's, that's 14 years ago. I sat in the audience at, uh, they do it in the opera house on the West side of Manhattan. What is that called? Lincoln center. So the David Geffen theater in Lincoln center. I sat in the audience, one of, I don't know, 4,000 people. 
Most of the people there are like hedge fund marketers, but whatever. I'm in the audience. I'm live blogging it. Um, the post is probably still up. He was fire and brimstone for 40 minutes. He had slides. Here's why like America as we know it is coming to an end and the stock market is probably going to get cut in half uh, very soon, just like it did in 2008 and blah, blah, blah. And like none of it, none of it came true. I doubt he was invested that way. I think he just was like doing like doing his thing. He's None a of deep almost thinker. anything he said over the last decade plus has come no. true. And yet I'm sure he's done just fine. Better well, than that's just fine. my that's yeah. my point. A year later, I was back at Lincoln Center, or two years later, 2012. None of the shit he predicted happened. Everything was fine. Like there was a debt crisis in Europe. Okay, everyone understood that. By 2012, Markets are recovering. He's back on stage. He's got a whole other story. Nobody holds it against him. He's a deep thinker. Guy's a market. Guy's a, um, a deep market thinker. He's entitled to have opinions. You are entitled not to react every time he gets on TV. Um, is is Druck the anti Buffett? Like you know how the bear, like the the bears just hate Buffett and the bulls love him. Druck's the guy that the bears really love. Druck is the macro goat. I've never met Druck. I actually don't have the right to refer to him that way. Stanley Druck and Miller is the macro goat. Mm -hmm. Fair. And some of the greatest trades of all time. Um, but it's and track like record and track record. His so he was in he was in uh, Market Wizards, and I forget exactly what it was, but I think he's never had two down months in a row, never had a down quarter. Something be just beyond absurd. Yeah, like absurd. But the Bears love, but the Bears really love him. Like, like, is he the Buffett of the bears? Even if he's not always bearish. He's the macro Buffett. He's the macro Buffett. Okay. So that must really piss off like his acolytes who are like trying to short the market every, every month when they see that he's long NVIDIA and Eli Lilly, which oh, he's a trader. is, it's like kryptonite to, to, you know, the bear case to have stocks doing that. They, they look at those stocks like two massive bubbles and he's riding them long. They must. They must feel betrayed. I think the thing, extent. the thing that Druck Miller has talking has spoken about publicly, that's so impressive is how much he knows himself. And when you're trading, yeah. when you're investing, it's not just about you versus the market. It's about you versus yourself. So he spoke about how if he was cold, he would just sell everything, start from a clean slate, which makes a lot of sense, but it's really difficult to do. When he would get back into the market, he would do it slowly, put a fish, put a put a fishing line in the water. Not go, not jump all the way back in head first. Like he's he's just an incredibly incre impressive so, trader. So he would never stand in front of an audience and say, "Hey guys, you should all trade the way I trade." Mm -mm. Like you should change your opinion three times in one day and be leveraged long, then leveraged short, then finish the day leveraged long. He would never advocate that style of investing to the general public. Because he's a bright guy and he understands that most people cannot do what he does. But the media doesn't care. When they get a hold of him and they get him talking, they present it like does like Stanley Druckenmiller with a warning for investors. It's like, don't do that. Because people can't control themselves and they don't know better. They don't understand what's really going on. This is a macro hedge fund manager who, by the way, is in retirement. Just like talking about how he feels in this moment, not giving financial advice to, <laughs> to people saving for retirement. But like, the, it, and I totally understand it. The media cannot help themselves. They always have to go that next step. Like, and here's why you need to pay attention. 
because it's a it's a it's an engagement uh, game, and I guess I understand it. But that's not his fault at all. He's not the one presenting his views that way. What's this ten biggest single day market cap gains? Um, just- on Thursday, after Nvidia reported earnings, they yeah. gained uh, two hundred forty seven billion dollars in market cap. Not a <laughs> bad day. <laughs> If I didn't own it, I would be the biggest NVIDIA hater on the planet. Are there 20 companies that size? I don't so know, something like st- that. This is, so, this is so stupid. All right. Uh, I guess it'll continue until uh, they miss earnings. And guess and what? Stock, it's still trading great. Unbelievable. The, not giving anything the stock, back. The stock will go up $240 billion every time they report an, an earnings beat until they don't. And uh, I guess it'll take, the, it'll take the elevator down. All right. Uh, speaking of watch what they do, I just wanted to throw this in here. Insider selling is becoming a story, and I don't blame the insiders for selling. Stocks are up bigly, uh, but some pretty notable people at some pretty big companies are unabashedly taking chips off the table. Uh, Jeff Bezos sold 50 million shares of Amazon over the course of nine trading days this month. That's $8.5 billion for those of you playing at home. And I understand relative to his stake that's not that much money but it's like a lot of money mm-hmm. and he has a new fa- you know fancy new wife and she definitely knows how to spend but this is not that this is not covering this is not covering her uh rodeo drive bills that's not what's going on here this is uh this is something else uh mark zuckerberg sold 1.8 million shares of meta for 400 million dollars in the last two months of last year jp morgan's jamie diamond just sold 822,000 shares of, of uh, J.P. Morgan this month. That's about $150 million. Diamond is not worth $80 billion. Like That's like serious money for him personally. Uh, he has not sold a lot of stock historically. It's his first sales of J.P. Morgan in the entire 18-year period that he was the CEO. Hmm. So, And the stock's at an all-time high. So just, you know, just file that away. Um, Zuckerberg hadn't sold Meta for almost two years prior to these sales. Wow. Good for him. Unbelievable. Uh, Bezos was selling less than $3 billion a year prior to 2019. Now it's $3 billion in four days in 2020. And now uh, Sean writes, that's triple in the last nine days. So these are meaningful sellers in my view. And there's a lot of other sales, but these are just like, some of the big marquee names. So uh, I thought I thought uh, I thought that was worth pointing out. Um, Sean mentions these are conducted under trading plans. These aren't shocks. These trading plans get announced in advance, and it's a way that insiders could sell without people looking and saying, "Uh oh, what do they know that's coming?" You know what I mean? But still, the amounts are are, are big. Um, I wanted to ask you about recruiting loans, dude. Did you ever like fully understand how this stuff works? Uh, the wirehouses recruiting advisors and how they record it as debt. Did you like? Did you fully understand that, that stuff? That part, no. Honestly, that part was new to me. I thought that was interesting. It, ma- it makes a ton of sense. So this is really interesting. This is Advisor Hub, and they're writing about Morgan Stanley. Their recruiting loan balance is now at four point three billion. So I will. This is Mason Braswell. He says, this is the fourth straight year of increases for Morgan Stanley's recruiting loan balance. It rose 5.5% last year. And that's because they are keeping up the recruiting pressure on rivals. 
So Morgan Stanley pulls talented advisors from other large firms. And the way they do that is with a signing bonus. But the signing bonus looks like a loan. Right. Because if you leave before the period of the contract, the advisor owns, owes the money back. So they're recording these as loans, I guess, until they're retired because enough time has passed. So they – or they owe – they record it as money that they owe the advisor is, is the right way to phrase it. Um, so $4.35 is a lot of money. Um, that's up $229 million from the prior year. So the loan growth of these things slowed in 2022, uh, but now it seems to be picking up speed again. And when you ask – when somebody says, like, why would anybody be in the Wirehouse channel, this is – this is the reason why. It's lucrative. This is billions of dollars out there uh, being handed to advisors just for doing the job they were already doing. And to be clear, over to your firm, it's wirehouse to wirehouse, or yeah, maybe our, our broker AAs dealer are not doing this. Maybe broker dealer to wirehouse. It's it's not. It doesn't go the other way around. Right. Uh, this is also interesting. The recruiting loans are forgiven over nine to twelve years. I didn't realize these things went that long. So you are really selling yourself into, I don't want to say like servitude because you're, these are people making millions of dollars, but you are really like giving yourself over to one of these firms for a long stretch of time if you take a check. Now you just can't leave. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, one other thing here. Um, oh, so Morgan Stanley had been doing a really good job at slowing down how much they had to pay brokers to work there because they were finding other ways to generate assets and almost making themselves like useful to the advisors. So they bought a whole bunch of stuff like E-Trade and some of these like uh some of these like um stock business like like corporate stock businesses where they would be able to funnel potential wealth management clients to their advisors and that would enable them to have to like not pay people off as much to work there. Um so that's something that James Gorman was doing a really good job with and I would imagine that's something that they probably want to continue. It's better, I think, to source the clients for your advisors than have to write these ridiculous checks to your advisors just for staying there or, or for coming there. Um, anyway, do you think that these loans are – do you think that these deals just really move up and down with the stock market, like the amount of them, the size of them? They seem like very pro-cyclical to me. Yes. You're not, you're not writing checks uh, in a bear market when everything's getting more expensive your assets are going down. Your fees are going down. Your borrower costs are going. Your borrowing costs are going up. You're not doing that in a bear market. No way. I wonder maybe if this kind of thing should be tracked as a, as a as an indicator of some sort. Although it's probably coincident or slightly lagging. Maybe there's nothing. Maybe there's nothing leading about it. It's just like, like the firm has a record quarter and they allocate like another hundred million dollars to. Yeah, when these companies maybe. are flush, they'll spend money, and when they're not, they cut back. All right. So, I mean, this is, but this is another indication that we're, re we're really back in like a serious Wall bull Street market. bull market. It's a bull market. So there, there's a lot of aspects of Wall Street that haven't come back yet. Um, IPOs are a notable uh, thing. But outside of that, a lot of aspects of Wall Street are, it looks like 1997. Um, you know, so. All right. Speaking of 97 or late 90s, last week, the NASDAQ 100, this oh, one bespoke. I'm sorry. We're going to throw these charts up real quick. Here's Morgan Stanley, five-year chart. That's okay. No man's land. Here's uh, UBS. This one looks better, and they have now fully digested that Credit Suisse uh, Leviathan that they swallowed up. 
this thing looks like it wants to break out. It probably looks more like the other European banks. Um, I like this one better than Morgan Stanley. But that's pretty much the story. Those are the two biggest wealth managers in the United States. I don't think Wells Fargo has kept pace. And Bank of America's Merrill Lynch unit seems like it's shrinking. So it's really like a two-horse race now, uh, which is also interesting. But okay, let's keep moving. Uh, last week, for the first time since dot, 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 March 2000, the NASDAQ 100 made a new all-time high uh, on a day gained 3%. Now, uh, that doesn't mean anything. It, it happened 100, I'm sorry, it happened, uh, it happened 22 times from 1998 to 2000. So while it is true that it happened at the top, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be the top. Wait, what exactly happened? What exactly happened was the NASDAQ 100 made a new all-time high on a day it gained 3%. So in other words, normally when it makes the new high, it's not also like a huge gap up day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean- right. It's, it, it's, dribble, it dribbles up. It, it doesn't normally do what it did last year. I don't week. want to say normally because it did it 22 times in the late 90s. It hasn't done it this yeah. cycle. Right. Right. So you only really get that when you have big tech stocks reporting blowout numbers. In this case, we really only needed one. This is because- uh, Jason Getford's sentiment trader flagged this. Unusual situation developing. The NASDAQ composite is up nearly 3% with fewer than 55% of issues advancing. All five precedents occurred between 1999 and 2001, which was on the way down. So again, just unusual. Very odd, odd environment. I have to tell you, I think uh, the, chip, the chip rally is masking some serious weakness, and I think the NASDAQ is still in this process of topping out. Where's the weakness? Because um, the QQEW some, closed at, I think, at an all-time high today. Yeah, I think I think I think Apple's going to have a lot of trouble getting back to its high and and printing a fresh one. I think Alphabet's in the penalty box for a quarter or two, and that's a best case scenario. They're like bud lighting themselves right now in full view of the investing public, and people just do not want to go anywhere near that thing. They are not reassuring anyone. They are going to now re-release Gemini a month after launching it. Um, in another few weeks, they claim and try to fix all this bullshit that's built into the algorithm. And I think people are going to laugh at it when it when it comes back online. Uh, they're going to have a million people on social media trying to find, uh, trying to find, poke holes in it. It is just, it's a really, and I'm a long, I'm a long-term investor in Alphabet. This is probably the most pessimistic I've been about the stock since, I, since I've owned it. Uh, Tesla's in a 19% drawdown from its high, having one of its worst years ever. And that's just year to date, dude. Like 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 one of its worst years ever, year to date. I just it's, have to reiterate. A, so yeah, some of these names. Case. You're at Apple doesn't look great. Well, I'm, I'm telling you one by one, the big important stocks are bleeding. Now, here's why that's bullish. I don't subscribe to this theory that the market can't do well without these names. Maybe statistically it needs them, but like there are amazing charts all over the S&P 500 right now. Hang on. Every sector. Meta- Microsoft and Amazon all look very, very strong. So yeah, Apple doesn't look good. Tesla doesn't look good. Google's whatever. But I have to reiterate, the equal weighted version of the NASDAQ 100 closed at an ATH today. It's never been higher. So there's not a lot of weakness around. It's a lot of strength. No, I think you have money coming out of those really big stocks and finding a home elsewhere. 
and that could continue. I just think it's uh, I think that the I think the leadership, the leadership changeover that seems like it's happening here is going to be a little bit bumpier than what we've experienced so you, far. You That's might be saying. right. You might be right going forward, but just to reiterate, the rally is broadening out. It's not narrowing. Yeah. Which is well, great. I liked My point is, I like that it's broadening out away from tech as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not fully reliant on tech the way that maybe it was in November or, or October or whatever. RSP too. The equal weight S&P looks yeah. freaking great. I agree. It's a beautiful uh, thing. I'm looking at some really big, really important stocks in every sector making all-time highs. Walmart, McDonald's, Berkshire. JP Morgan. There's, there's like, there's sex out there. Like people are having sex, definitely. Costco. Uh, yeah. Very uh, sexy right. stock. Uh, the Reddit IPO. I'm really fascinated by this. Oh, who could that be? John Reddit? <gasps> oh. Look, it's Aaron Dillon, everyone. What's up, fellas? Yo, <laughs> in the chat, you'll go crazy for Aaron Dillon. Guys, Aaron is a friend of Michael and I, and he is one of the, I would say, acknowledged experts in pre-IPO startups. So companies that are on the runway. And Aaron helps investors get access to those companies if they're interested and uh, works with, you know, high net worth people, accredited people. Uh, but Aaron writes about the stuff and he's got a YouTube channel that we link to below. What's your, uh, someone asked, are you Tim Dillon's brother? No, no, he is not. But he's great. Tim Dillon's great. But we, Come we're, on. we're Tim Dillon fans here on the, on the show. Uh, what's your, what's your read? No pun intended on the Reddit uh, S one filing and like the price chatter, like what, tell us what's going on. Yeah. So Reddit is, uh, is an interesting one, right, Josh? So they raised, uh, at a $10 billion valuation back in 2021, right? Not anymore. So there's some, there's some blood on the field, uh, with this one coming out uh, the target valuation is for the IPO is at 5 billion. And, okay. uh, and it's a it's an interesting business. They, so the it's a social media platform, right? Yeah. What it's is an, the business it's, model? It's an ad. It's an ad business. Yeah, you got it. And actually, they just sold a sixty million dollar per year data deal to uh, Google to train okay. AI. That's so a lot maybe of money. Fix some of this. Fix some of these large language. That's models a, that's a great business, but there's like three yeah. customers for that. Yeah. Well, there might okay. be more, but but I I think that could be. It's an interesting business. There's no expenses related to that, Josh. Right. That goes right to the right to net income. So it's right. a pretty interesting, pretty interesting model. But, you know, they're losing money. They lost $91 million last year. That is a 42% improvement over 2022. And their revenue is at $804 million. This is the S1, right? And that's, that's a full year, 804 million full year 2023. You got it. That's right. And yes. that's growing 20% versus 2022. So a lot of social media platforms are not growing 20%. We know Twitter's not. Yep. Snap is definitely not. That's uh, right. And there aren't any others really left. So, right. all right, it's a growth story. We haven't seen an IPO in social media in, it feels like Ooh, seven or eight years. Long time. When's the last one? Last one? Slur, snap. I think. Snap, snap. Pinterest? Snap. You're right. Yep, that's right. I, I, don't, right. I don't really know, but it's it's a decimated category. Not decimated because it's not money being made, but like there just aren't companies. That's right. They yeah, come so and these, go really fast. They do. So this is the last one to drop. I mean, it's the last one I could think of that's big, at least in, in the US What's market. the user base? Uh, they have uh, 73 million daily active unique users, right? That's up 22% from last year. So they're growing their user base. That's a, lo- that's a lot of daily unique, u- unique users. There's yeah. not a lot of and those. Reddit's an interesting, uh, interesting business too. I mean, it's different than social, than like a Facebook or an Instagram. There's no, pic- you know, 
it's a different kind of user, right? I think is what my point is, a social media user than your normal social media platform. Aaron, what did you say the revenue was? Uh, $804 million. So at five, at $5 billion, I feel like I would buy that. That's more than I would have guessed. It's an interesting model. Listen, it's it's interesting. It, look, they're losing money, Josh. I think that's the key thing, right? And Can I ask how? How? Drop. Please, how? <laughs> a lot uh, of expenses. Ser- servers. I, I, that that seriously, Michael? I don't know. I, that that question, I don't know. It's a lot. I need to dig into the S one to get into the reasons on why they're spending over. You know, oh, was it a hundred million dollars in, in stock based comp? I mean, there that's was a lot so of expenses. much money. Yeah, their CEO. They just announced this past week. Their CEO, or in the S one, that their CEO got a hundred and ninety two million dollar, one hundred ninety three million dollar compensation. Yeah, that's why package. they're losing money. They paid the yeah. CEO two hundred million dollars last year. Yeah, the the uh, COO had a had a nice one too. So that that's definitely a drag. Um, some of that's restricted stock. Some of it's options. That's got a vest, but you know they're pulling that. Aaron, you keep saying it's an interesting model. I call it a feudalistic model. They have content moderators. Mm-hmm. similar to Wikipedia, who right. are volunteers. Right. Like Wall Street Bets was set up by a content moderator whose job it was to enforce the rules of the thread. Right. And so if somebody came on there like promoting a crypto coin or something, they would have to kick them out. That's a, a, a payless and some would say thankless job. Oh, yeah. That's they, So they say in the S1, one of their risk disclosures is how important it is that moderators continue to work for free. Yeah, that's well, kind of, that's like kind of that's kind of a really big risk. Well, they had a bit of a revolt last year too, Josh. If you remember, right? So they 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 used to allow their data to be downloaded, and there was APIs for that and other things that developers could use to get access to it. And they shut that off because they wanted to start selling it for AI for AI. So they took that they took that jewelry away from the moderators, that- and the moderators are using got really salty about that, right? So okay. there was a little rift between that. So it is certainly a risk. Okay, that's I feel like that salary is a lot more money than most publicly traded CEOs make uh, who are profitable and doing more than 800 million in revenue. Now, for what it's worth though, the CEO, I gotta tell you, the CEO is one of the original founders, right? So Alexis Ohanian was the other fellow. This fellow Steve Huffman was the original founder. You know, they started this business and they sold it to Condé Nast like back in 2006, I think it was, for $10 million. And what, they bought it back? No, they brought him back as CEO because it was Condé Nast really didn't do much with it, right? And then they brought Huffman back, and now he's running it. So this is going to be his big payday, this guy. So I, I'm glad they I'm cut happy out, for him. They cut out Alex Ohanian completely. He's not even mentioned in the S one. That's weird that there's a founder who's like out there alive and well, and he yeah. just like kind of got screwed over. And he was he, the chairman for a while too. Like when he came in, they were doing like 10 million of revenue, and he kind of brought this thing back, and then brought Huffman back, and it got it back on track to to generate a lot of revenue. Right? Is this a user base that advertisers really care about reaching? Yeah, it's, it's like a high income, like like because I, I don't I don't use it, but I'm not putting it down. I just it's it's uh it's uh just labyrinthine to me. I can't figure yeah. out what to do there. Yeah, Maybe so because all I ever do is promote myself and it's like not a good <laughs> self-promotion platform. So I'm at a loss for why I would use Reddit. But like what like what is the what's the ad play here worth? Yeah. So I listened to a podcast with a fellow that was on Reddit's product team when they kind of turned the ship around and started driving a lot of revenue. His thing was they built a lot of tools to to do just that, right? To help promote advertising around. 
made a big difference in, in focus. They also hired a big sales team to go out and, and make that happen too. The other point that they made was that it's just really influential. So when you Google something, the Reddit like shows up on the first page, man. Yeah, so like I heard that argument on that stuff and they read it. When Twitter was a public company, that was always the argument. Like it, we have a tiny user base, but mm. it's the right user base. It's like the most widely read journalists and politicians. And I heard that argument about the influence and it didn't work. Or at least Twitter was not great at convincing advertisers that that mattered. Right. And that's why right. it never worked. Still so, are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the risks in the S1 is that Wall Street bets could get, gang up and decide they want to destroy the stock. Right. That's, this has got to be the first company in history where a prominent risk factor is that its own customers could kill it if yeah. they're dissatisfied in some way. <laughs> that, is, yeah. that is wild stuff. Uh, what, what are we to make of that? Okay, so, so listen, what's interesting about Reddit, so they're, if they're top 75,000 users, right? They're actually making space for them in the IPO to participate directly. Which is Josh. really cool. It is cool. It is cool. So I think it's a tip of the cap to the risk that you just said, right? And I think they hope if fo those folks are participating with their own balance sheet, that maybe they'll be uh, kind, right, in, in, uh, in how the stock is performing. Okay, the so they're saying the there's 75,000 users of Reddit that based on how much they use it will be allocated a piece of the IPO if they want it. They're inviting, yeah, inviting, inviting them to participate them. in the IPO. Yeah, so they'll still I mean, use their own dollars, yeah. We've seen that before. We've seen companies go out of their way to make sure that their uh, users get to participate. I think that's smart. Good PR. Yes. I wonder how many people will take them up on it or if they'll even uh, tell us. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know what price they would give it to. I'm assuming it would, it's participating directly in the IPO to get the same share, you know, sh IPO share price as everybody why else. Do they think, why do they think Wall Street Bets wants to kill it or, or might want to kill it? I, don't, I have no idea. I mean, I, you would think, I would think the opposite, that these guys would be, they're power users. They send so much time. There's like an affinity and a passion for it. Right. But, I mean, the only thing I could think of is like what happened last year with the CEO where he, he, they don't like the strategic direction that the business is going. So they try okay. to deep six it or slap it around so that these guys get back on track for what they want to have happen. But um, yeah, I would think they, they would want to, they wouldn't want the stock price to go up. Who invested in this thing at uh, 10 billion three years ago? Yeah, it was not pretty, man. They had uh, Fidelity and Tencent were the two big ones that were in there. Fidelity led that round. So they're going to take it on the chin in a big way. In this, I, feel like the, I feel like they'll be fine. And macro, yeah, I think they'll be they'll definitely Michael, be fine. Michael, are you buying and selling Reddit at a five, $5 billion valuation on $800 million in trailing 12-month revenue? You taking a shot or what? No, I'm not a user of the platform. So I, I like you, Josh. I don't really understand. I don't really understand it that well. I'm curious though, Aaron, what you're hearing about demand on the street. Is this going to be a flop or are people lining up to, to aggressively participate? Yeah. So I'm, I, it's interesting. So in the secondary market, Michael, before this thing was going public, it was trading around $5 billion. So like kind of the market, pr private market, private pre-IPO stock market had it in at 5 billion. So I, I think it probably could hold in there. It's going to be interesting to see anytime one of these pre-IPO stocks goes public, naturally the public markets are their own unique animal, right? Um, not always kind. So it's usually, uh, it, it's I, I, this company being, having negative net income, okay, I think for everybody that I'm talking to, they're not, they don't understand that. That point that you brought up earlier, Michael, is how is this company losing money if they're making 800 
million dollars a year. That means they're spending nine hundred million dollars a year. Like, what yeah, are they spending that on? What are they spending? Right. On? So, so it's, that's it sounds the question like, I'm hearing. From it everybody. sounds like you would be more surprised if this pop twenty versus you agreed know, took it on the chin a little bit. I agree with that. Yes, I agree. With One that. thing we've learned this year though is a negative debut doesn't necessarily mean all is lost. Uh, Arm Holdings was a complete flop. Yeah. The, the, the rap on Arm Holdings is this is SoftBank just trying to get liquid because all right. their other shit looks terrible. Yeah. And that really turned out to uh, have been a, a not a great sale for them, but a great right. buy for the public. Uh, yeah. Right? So, That's all right. right. Hey, right. Uh, you're going you're gonna to keep us updated. If, if this IPO market ever wakes up, we're going to have to uh, – we're gonna have to bring you on more often, okay? Yeah, done. Ready man. to play? I, there's a lot of companies that are just like Reddit, Josh, down 50% in the secondary market. So if it's it's cool that these guys are going because it might unlock the floodgates. There's at least six or seven companies that are in the same situation. Big rounds, big primary rounds in the private market, and now down 50% in the secondary market in private. So hopefully these guys this opens it up and these guys start to come in IPO. Hey, Aaron, tell everybody where they could watch your uh, your stuff on YouTube. We have a link below the show, um, but for the people listening to the podcast, where do they go? Yeah, it's this week in pre-IPO stocks. And of course, you can go agdillon.com, right, to check okay. it out too. All right, awesome. We're going we're gonna to have, uh, have you back soon. Thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. It. Thanks, fellas. Appreciate you guys. Thanks. All right, dog. All right, All right, Josh. Aaron Dillon, ladies and gentlemen. Last time we spoke about streaming, I had a bit of egg on my face because you were talking about a deal coming up and I said, no way. Why would that happen? And then literally 12 hours later, there was rumors of Warner brothers and Paramount coming together. Still, for- st- still just rumors. Well, worse than that. Worse yeah. than that. Um, no. It's not good. Luke, here's from Lucas Shaw. Uh, Warner brothers discovery shares tanked on Friday after the company reported sales shrank by 7% in the final quarter of the year. That same morning, S and P put Paramount on credit watch so here's the numbers. Advertising revenue in the TV networks division dropped 12%. This is at Warner Brothers. Dropped 12% to $1.9 billion. That's half of their business. That's half their revenue. Revenue of the film and TV studios was $3.2 billion, down 18% from a year earlier. It's direct-to-consumer business. That's that's max, grew just 5%. The company lost almost 3 million subscribers, but Lucas is on it. He's not fooled. He says, Warner Brothers has convinced some outlets to report its streaming business is profitable, it's direct to consumer business is profitable, but that includes all the HBO services via cable. HBO yeah. used to make more than $2 billion in profit a year. Uh, the direct to consumer business didn't clear $200 million. So it's a fucking disaster. These stocks are down. That's, uh, 20- that's, Lu- that's Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg. Less Lucas Shaw at Bloomberg. Jeez, yeah. Bianca. Um, <laughs> these stocks are down 25% year to date, and Paramount yeah. just hit another low, down 65% since it was spun out. Just a real, a total shit show. These, th- these companies are so fucked up right now. Warner Brothers Discovery is, is such a train wreck. So basically, D- David Zasloff, who is backed by John Malone, who controls this thing uh, as, as the, the, the primary shareholder and kind of orchestrated uh, this to be put together, right? So you had Discovery... And that was like really not a standalone thing. Yeah, let's AT- mash it with Warner Brothers. That'll, well, AT and T was dying to get to get out of to get out of content, and uh, so they were selling Warner Brothers HBO, and they smashed it together with, with Discovery, which had a, its own app, and they built the HBO Max app. And the idea was more content is the only the way to survive. Now, though, you tie the CEO's compensation 
to the cash flow, what do you think he's going to do? He's closing production. He's shutting down movies, shutting down shows. They like made entire movies and then wrote them off for taxes. They did take care of a big portion. They, they took care of, I think, $15 billion of dollars worth of debts. So yes, but, only- at what, but at what cost? They're making less content as a result. It's not at, They're not cutting costs by like, uh, let's not reorder Dunkin' Donuts pods for the Kerrig. They're literally shutting down their future by stopping production and you know not doing follow-up seasons to popular shows. So yeah, now they could tell Wall Street, hey, look how much we improved the cash flow and look how much debt we paid down. Okay, but at what cost? Your future, basically. Yeah. Now- TNT has the NBA. Not for much longer. Like, how are they going to pay for that? They're going to bid against Apple for for, for the Friday there. night games or whatever. Apple's not there. So 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 TNT has has the best pregame show in the country. Everybody loves watching Shaq and Charles Barkley. So maybe that's the way they convince the NBA to not price them completely out of the 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 state uh, the sweepstakes. Um, but you need live sports to give people a reason to tune in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Otherwise, HBO is a Sunday night phenomenon. Like we 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 watch HBO on Sunday night. That's when they give us The Wire and and uh House of the Dragon, which is coming back, and Sopranos and Sex in the City and Oz. And that's like just the the HBO thing. There's not enough else happening on Max to make me turn this app on as much as I turn on Netflix. I go to, I check in, um, I pop into Max once a week and it's just nothing, there's nothing there. There's shit that you saw already. And that, and that is the problem. And the, here's the other thing they're doing. One of the ways they're paying down all this debt is licensing their, their content to, to other platforms. Right. So now you could watch the Batman on Netflix, which is cool because it's easy, but it's not cool because the money that they're making from doing that is keeping them from signing the next million, you know, subs who don't need to subscribe. So there. I don't know what happens to these companies. I don't know how a merger is the either. answer. Like, how, who does that help? Well, again, it was a failed theory. The theory was, if we don't build this, we're dead. That was probably. I true. get it. No, they were. The they second were fu- theory they was, we need fu- to get really big. They were probably in trouble either way. I'm just saying, at this point, what is a Paramount Warner Brothers uh, marriage? Who does that help? Right. Well, it's two different. That, that's not going to happen. Paramount is in talks to be bought by Larry Ellison's son and a private equity group that has done a lot of media and entertainment deals recently. They've never done anything on this scale. Yeah, but, pr- but prior to him coming in, that was the that was the scoop. It was Paramount and Warner Brothers. Yes, but I'm saying that's over now. Right. They've said that's over. Right. Paramount will probably be acquired by uh, Skydance or whatever the hell it is. The which whole is, thing or, or parts? Yeah, no, they'll, they'll buy the whole thing and they'll they'll find a buyer for CBS. You probably have to sell that to a cable company for nothing or an overseas buyer that just wants to have influence in America. But you have to, you must get rid of MTV, Nickelodeon, CBS. You must get rid of that, these things. Oh, so um, much garbage and dead every day. Bad. Every day you don't, they're worth less than the day before. It's literally like owning an iceberg in August. So that'll happen. And then they'll keep Paramount, which is a great asset, has an incredible content library. And if they were smart, they would do what Sony did. Sony didn't build an app. Sony sell it's an arms dealer. All of these app companies are so thirsty for content. Sony is like, here you go. How much you want for Spider-Man? How much you want for this, for that? We have 50-year film library, and we make 10 originals a year, and we'll sell them to the highest bidder all day. That's Sony's business. They're not burning 
$2 billion a year trying to sign subs. They never bothered. And now, so that looked stupid three years ago. Now it looks brilliant. And I think that's probably the future for Paramount. They become another arm, content arms dealer. You want another Top Gun movie? No problem. We'll make it. We'll sell it to you. Netflix. You want more, you want more Barbie? Like that. Like that's what they'll do. Netflix was the roadrunner, or maybe I'm getting this analogy backwards, and Warner Brothers and everybody else followed them off the cliff, except Netflix stopped short and ran the other way. Are these stocks investable? I don't think so. Like, I would. It's crazy that I feel like Paramount is more investable just because they're closer to, to, to selling themselves. I'd, I'd much rather Warner own Paramount. Brothers has better has has a better content bigger if, content library. If I had to, I'd rather own Paramount. Warner Brothers is a disaster. It's I mean the whole thing is a disaster <sighs> basically. And uh, Zaslav's another guy paying himself hundreds of millions of dollars. It's really it's it's quite remarkable. And John I'm, Malone is eighty four years old, and I don't I don't know what what's going to happen here. So why aren't there other any other uh, no, no other activists want to come in and go against him? Is that the you deal? Can't, you can't. No no no. You can't. You can't be an activist in a John Malone company because he owns all the votes. What are you, what are you going to do? Convince him? You're not, you're, you have a BlackRock Vanguard State Street owns some of the stock and he owns most of it. Yeah. Most of his companies are tracking stocks. They're not even, they're not even like technically a stock. Like the Atlanta Braves, I think, and XM Sirius both have tracking stocks. That's like, it's like buying a bootleg of a movie. It's, it's almost, the whole thing is just a, a, a messy situation. So uh, I don't want to be anywhere near these. All right. All we right. have a couple of minutes left. What do we I, have to get to? I'm going to make, uh, make the case. I'm going to make the case for a stock that I added to today. Uh, I don't know. This is quite a Buffett stock, but it's. it's oh, a, I, t I said this one. I said this one. Yeah, yeah. It's a it is a, a Buffett stock. It's a pretty damn good business and it's trading at a fair price. It's trading at like 18, time, 18 or 19 times forward earnings. It's a fair price. Um, a lot of the damage is behind them and technically the stock's acting well. So I added to my Schwab position today. Here are the ways in which this is a Buffett stock. Number one, it's been around for 50 years. You know, he puts a high, he puts a, a high value on companies that have survived multiple cycles, decades. That's one. Two, a market share leader in its space. Uh, we can have an argument about the, the moat, but I don't think. Schwab's competitive There's position one competitor. is in any doubt at all. There's yeah. one competitor. Competes with fidelity in a real sense and no one else. Uh, so that's good. Number three, he probably knows Chuck personally. So knowing the founder, even though Chuck's not operationally running the business, that's probably in Buffett's eyes like a, a good thing. Uh, number four, it's a financial business and Buffett understands financial businesses better than any other type of business. Um, and number five, this is a great company at a good price. And guess what? Like, what better? Like that's way, the definition. What better way to invest in America than owning the assets that own America? You know what? I might buy this thing. We'll see what happens. All right. Great, great, uh, great. Make the case. I, I agree with you. I have a mystery chart for you. Can't wait. Throw this, throw this bad boy up, John. All right. My hint is I own it. I talk about it. Relentlessly. I mean, dude, it's enough with the stock already. It's a one year. I, know, I mean, come it's, on. It's mooning, but it's but it's mooning, but it's mooning. It's it's mooning. Uh, this is, I think, a tw this has twenty percent left in it based on current fundamentals. Is this the market cap? Um, no, this is the stock price. It's the stock price. Oh, you know what? My bad. Then I apologize. I thought this was Uber what did you again. Think it was. Thought it was Uber again. 
No, that's not even what Uber's chart looks like. Okay. Um, uh, actually, this is what Uber's chart looks like. Oh, okay. Kind of. Well, well, it isn't. So. Okay, so this is a stock that you own. It's mooning. It mooned on my birthday. Oh, is this Shake Shack? You're damn right it is. You got a All mooner. Right. Can I show you something? Put the put wow. the next chart up. Okay, this is how long I've owned the stock. It came public uh, early 2015. Uh, I never sold it. I've added to it over time. Um, it has been a horrendous hold. As you could see, there were moments in 2022 where it was at the same price it was at when it came public. One second. And <laughs> it's still not back at its uh, all-time highs. But the orange line, Michael, is quarterly revenue. All right, good for them. They are now over a billion-dollar annual run rate, $286 million as of last quarter. And uh, if the revenue continues this way, it's because they keep opening up stores. Um, and, yeah, you're going to have swings in the stock. But I think ultimately this thing should be 20% higher than where it is. Uh, it's a $4 billion market cap. I think it should be $5 billion on over, over a billion in revenue, solidly profitable, and uh, st staying long. So like that's it. my mystery chart. All right. Hey, everybody. You know, tomorrow's Wednesday. That means a brand new episode of my favorite podcast, Animal Spirits, starring Ben Carlson and Michael Batnick. Make sure to look for that. And later this week, an all-new Compound and Friends, an all-new special guest. We're going to have an amazing conversation. We're all going to get a lot out of that, so make sure you look for that. Ben is doing Ask the Compound on Thursday afternoon. And if you missed it, Eli Manning on the compound is currently live on our YouTube channel. So make sure you don't uh, miss it for long. That's it from us tonight. We appreciate uh, you tuning in and we'll talk to you soon. Whether you're just getting started as an investor or you're managing a multi-million dollar portfolio, Ritholtz Wealth Management has the solution for you. It all starts with building the right financial plan. To speak with a certified financial planner today, visit RitholtzWealth.com. Don't forget to check us out at YouTube.com slash TheCompoundRWM. Make sure to leave a rating and review on your favorite podcasting app. If you love investing podcasts, check out Michael and Ben every Wednesday morning on Animal Spirits. Thanks for listening. Ritholtz Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Ritholtz Wealth Management and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. Nothing on this podcast should be construed as and may not be used in connection with an offer to sell or solicitation of an offer to buy or hold an interest in any security or investment product. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. No advice may be rendered by Ritholtz Wealth Management unless a client service agreement is in place.